Here we are on a cold and stormy night. Nice and cozy and warm in this room, that's for sure. This is great. Well, it's good to be with you again. This evening we're going to be looking at uh, Romans chapter 2, in particular verse 4. And we're going to look at a characteristic, an attribute of God uh, that uh, we are... We welcome in our life, and we also need to exhibit it to others in their lives. So if you're able, let's stand as we read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you... Who judge practice the same things. But we know that God is but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, that you who judge those practicing such things and do the same thing that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and impotent hearts, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man, who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So, Father, we are gathered together. We've taken this time out to give it to you, that you would just speak to us this evening. Uh, we, we each carry a different day into this room. And you know what that day was, and you know what tomorrow's going to bring. And I pray that you would minister to each and every one of our hearts. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we read, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some would count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. Why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Tonight we're going to look at verse 4 in particular of chapter 2 here. And as we look at this character of God, this attribute of God, which we are so richly blessed by, let us remember uh, as well that this character is given to us by God, his goodness, his long-suffering, his patience. We're to be good and long-suffering and patient with those who are sinning, caught in a sin but it doesn't mean that we don't deal with sin and evil in our world. I just want to make sure we understand that, but it doesn't mean we just sit back and let it go. In chapter 1, Paul gives a serious indictment against the gross and the fragrant sins of the ungodly, of the unrighteous. And, and he lists those sins there, and you, you've read it before, and we don't have time tonight to go through it all, but they're ungodly and they're unrighteous sins, and God's given them over to themselves and we know that uh, because we've been there, when we, we have given ourselves over to ourselves, and it's not a good thing. In chapter 2, Paul addresses the Jew who had the law, 
who had certain privileges, and basically they became respectable sinners. They became uh, those who played the hypocrite. Uh, they were those who think that they themselves are better than other ones who were listed in chapter 1, but they end up doing the same things that they were condemning uh, in chapter 1. I love the word of God because Hebrews 4.12 spells that out so clearly, that the word of God is alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So if we ever want to get to the heart of the matter, we turn to God's word. And we let, as I've been taught all these years, we let the spirit of God through the word of God transform the life of the people of God. Now, when we want to look better than others, it's easy to do if we use the wrong comparison. For instance, if I was to stand in front of you this evening and on the right-hand side was Nancy Pelosi or Dr. Fauci or Kim Jong-un of North Korea, I'd look pretty good. If that's the standard I set, I win, right? I, I, I look good. But not so with God because we're told that God deals in truth. And he doesn't judge anybody by our own standards. He judges by his standard. And his standard basically is the law, but praise the Lord because of that standard, the law that was, has been perfectly explained, has been amplified, has been perfected, and completely fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. Before Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he said to the religious leaders of his day, this is John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, he said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then shortly after the mount, Jesus said, Matthew five seventeen. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to do what? To fulfill them. So he's fulfilled that standard, and as he now has made us his, and we are his, and he's with us, we're in a good shape. We're in good shape. So if we want to measure ourselves by anybody else or any other standard, we as Christians are obligated to measure ourselves alongside of Christ and Christ only. He's the only one we may. And when we do that, I think something wonderful happens for us. Clarity. Things become crystal clear. There, there's no more grounds that we might have for hypocrisy in, in our own lives or smugness. So in chapter 2, uh, Paul makes it clear that the religious moralizer, the, the hypocrite, their secret lives, he says in verse 16, will be judged by Christ. And that this judgment, he says, is for all because God shows no partiality, be they Jew or Gentile. We have a very just and fair God. See, judge, God's judgment is coming. We know there's a final judgment coming, but it's also his judgment comes on us individually when we sin and refuse to repent. But know this, until then, until we repent, we read in our text tonight that God is rich in his goodness, he's rich in his forbearance and long-suffering towards us. 
And he's that way for one very important reason. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that important reason in a moment. Now, some people might take issue with being compared to people in chapter 1. But, or even close to those people in chapter 1. But maybe we sometimes need to read a different translation. And I want to read to you J.B. Phillips' translation of chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And he says, But as prepared as you are to instruct others, do you ever teach yourself anything? You preach against stealing, for example, but are you sure of your own honesty? Oh, you denounce the practice of adultery, but are you sure of your own purity? Oh, you loathe idolatry, but how honest are you towards the property of heathen temples? You see, for us, I mean, the reality is, as Christians, we know there are sins of the flesh and there are sins of the spirit. In fact, 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And still, as I would teach this, I know there are some who still would object and say, well, I'm, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not a religious moralizer. And I just would say, well, then be reminded of the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter. Because with every prodigal son, there is the older son. With every prodigal daughter, there is the older daughter. J.B. Phillips <clears throat> says this, and <clears throat> how he translates verse 4, chapter 2. Are you perhaps misinterpreting God's generosity and his patient mercy towards you as a weakness on his part? Don't you realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Now, you've been there, and I know you meet people who are there who have very wrong ideas about God. There are those who say that God doesn't exist, that any good that comes their way, that they either had something to do with or they deserve it. And whatever bad comes their way, well, that's because of something else out of their control, uh, it's a sign to somebody else's fault, and I'm just a victim. Uh, some of you might be old enough to remember uh, the term acts of God. Uh, insurance companies use that term a lot, acts of God. But there used to be a general feeling in our country uh, when I grew up that people generally had an idea of a God above. And in that, there were acts, things that happened that we call natural disasters like flood and hurricanes and fires and tornadoes and earthquakes. But it's been changed. They're not called acts of God anymore. They're called natural disasters. And I think that's because the God of the Bible has been removed from every fabric of our life and our culture and our society. And now those things are caused, those floods, those earthquakes, those uh, hurricanes and things, they're caused by something else. Uh, something else that we can identify and something else uh, that's impersonal, something that we can change. You see, something that we can have control over, like climate change, as if. So there are those who say God doesn't exist. There are those who say, well, God's a, I think God exists, but from what I hear, he's angry. He's uh, unfair. He's one of wrath. He's one of vengeance. And he's, worst of all, he's judgmental. He's mean, they would say. And he's always looking, you just make one more wrong step and I'm going to let you have it. 
So they say, if that's God, I don't want anything to do with that God. And if I have to do something with him or be around him, I'm going to do it with my heels kicked in and dragging all the way. It's, it's like the person who says, I don't like pickles. And I'm glad I don't like pickles. Because if I like pickles, I'd have to eat them, and I don't like them. Now, this person who thinks that God is angry and unfair and judgmental, they'll say his name when they hit their thumb with a hammer. But they won't say his name when they get that raise at work or the good report from the doctor or the birth of the first granddaughter. Not going to hear his name. Then we have those who go to the other extreme and say, well, God is love. God is love. After all, the Bible says that. Doesn't the Bible say in John, 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not, clap, 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 loveth not God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. So they would zero in on verses like that and passages like that and say God is love and love is love. And because of that, God doesn't judge, God doesn't condemn, God doesn't exclude anyone. God's love, and he's accepting of all that we think we are. After all, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. And God's love, he's inclusive, and that's how it is. Now, to the first one who says there is no God, I would direct that person to start with Genesis chapter 1, read John chapter 1, and then even Romans chapter 1. For those in 2 and 3, I would say there's some truth to both of that, but what they've done, they've gone to an extreme. They've exaggerated an attribute of God to the extent that it obscures his totality, his whole person. The fact that God is love and the fact that God judges does not ex- doesn't exclude one another. You see, we make a huge mistake to think that God to think of God in a rigid way, that he's either kind and loving or he's harsh and judgmental. In reality, both are more than true. The full picture of Christ is never complete with just one or two strokes of his attributes, of his character. You know, he's love, he's kind. Or, you know, he's strict and he's stern. No, the full picture of Christ has to be taken for the full counsel, the full word of God. And that's who we represent. So, so far, if you were reading Romans, we would see this about the nature and character of God, that there's a a righteousness about God. There's his wrath, there's his truth, there's his judgment, there's his goodness, there's his forbearance, there's his long-suffering. And when we focus just on one or two of those attributes of God to to the extent uh, of the others not being included, then what we do is we get a distorted picture of God And if we have a distorted picture of God, then we're presenting a distorted person of God to others. There are attributes of God that he wants us to emulate, are there not? He says, you know, this is how you should pray. This is how you should act. This is how you should love. But there are also attributes that are his and his only. Deuteronomy 29, 29, one of my favorite verses. Gets me out of a lot of tight places when people ask me tough questions. Check it out. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but those that he's revealed to us belong to us and our children forever. So, I'm a Christian. I read here in chapter 2, verse 4, 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's how God deals with me, dealt with me and still deals with me. That's how he deals with others. But I'm one of his. So I have to ask, I have to be honest with myself. I have to say, okay, if somebody was watching me, looking at me, would, is there anything about what I do as a live as a Christian that would make them come to me and say, I don't know what it is, John, but what you have, I want. Or do they see coming out of me as I look on the world and live in this world and react to the world, just judgment, impatience, condemnation towards people like we would read in chapter 1? Or do they see the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God exhibited in my life? So when we, when we read about these people in chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's real. It's real sins. And it's sins that need to be noted, sins that need to be identified, and need to be dealt with. Paul makes it very clear that those who openly practice such ungodly and unrighteous sins in chapter 1, as well as those in chapter 2 who sin as well and look down on those in chapter 1 and think themselves better than those in chapter 1 because somehow they have a relationship with God, we all face the judgment of God. Chapter 1 verse 2, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Verse 6, God will render to each one according to his deeds. Verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. Verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus according to my gospel. Now, the ones in chapter 1 who habitually make a lifestyle of ungodliness and unrighteousness, and the ones in chapter 2 that he's talking about who are playing the religious hypocrite, the moralizer, are misunderstanding a fundamental truth about the Lord God. And what is that fundamental truth? We see it in chapter 2, verse 4, because we see that God is rich in his goodness towards sinners, be they Jew nor Greek. He's rich in his forbearance towards sinners, be they saved or lost. He's rich in his long-suffering towards sinners, Christian or heathen. And he exhibits those characteristics towards us. And as he does it, he doesn't give approval to what we're doing as, and, and when we sin. He doesn't accept a sinful lifestyle. But that goodness, that kindness, that long-suffering, that forbearance that he gives, he gives to accomplish one thing in our life. Repentance. Repentance. It's been said that divine patience persistently abused leads to certain judgment. Divine patience persistently abused leads to certain judgment. There was a poem as I was preparing for this, there was a poem I came across and I liked it. I hope it, you like it. It says, There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patient and his wrath. Oh, where is that mysterious bourne by which our path is crossed beyond God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost? How far can one go on in sin? How long will mercy spare? Where does, God, where does grace end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the sky is sent, ye who from God depart. While it is called today, repent and harden not your heart. 
So we want to make sure that as God's people, as Christians, that we don't, that we're not mistaken about his character. Because I believe that one is one of the greatest affronts to God doesn't necessarily come from the list of those unrighteous and ungodly people in chapter 1. But one of the greatest affronts to God, the greatest blasphemy sometimes, comes from those who claim to know God, who claim to be his uh, light in this dark age. And yet the church, and I speak of the church as the whole, ends up doing exactly what the church is supposed to be not doing exactly what the world would do. We don't want to to be mistaken about his goodness. And in verse 4, the question is asked, it says, do you despise? Look at verse 4, do you presume, do you despise? Um, Do you despise his riches towards us, his riches as seen in his kindness and goodness, his forbearance and his patience? And if you look at that Greek word despise or uh, presume, It can be translated, despise, show contempt, presume, misinterpret, think lightly, think little of or think nothing of. And the Greek word means all of that. The point is this. Those to whom Paul was speaking, to the hypocrite and to us today, when we condemn others for their ungodly acts, and make no mistake about it, they're ungodly and they're unrighteous acts. That's for sure. But when we condemn them, plus we as a church do the same things, then we are showing contempt. We are thinking little of, we are thinking uh, uh, basically that it means no big deal about God's goodness and his forbearance. The riches of his goodness, his kindness, and his forbearance and patience that God exhibits towards us, these are qualities that we want to be exhibiting towards others. And we, when we don't exhibit those qualities, then we are thinking lightly of or little of those qualities that he has. And listen, if we think lightly of God's goodness, we have a, a problem, a twofold problem. One is, number one, we don't understand the holiness of God. And number two, we don't understand our own sinfulness. When we read riches there, it speaks of wealth in fullness. I mean, just overflowing there is no end. Uh, when we see goodness or kindness there, he speaks of this in, in regards to that is God is good. In fact, that last worship song, we, we spoke about the goodness of God. God is good. That is his nature. That is an attribute that we are benefiting by daily. And it's still another, another thing that that attribute is, is shown to us. It's who he is, and that's how he acts towards us and towards sinners. And we must understand that. When we read forbearance, there, forbearance means he's, he's holding back. He's delaying or pausing judgment for a moment. When God does not immediately bring his judgment on somebody, he does it for a purpose. And I'm glad he doesn't immediately bring judgment on me. Instead, in his riches, he bears with us. God for a season will put up with the insult that we've done to him. And he does this for a very important reason. There's forbearance. He wants people to turn. Remember the, the account in Luke chapter 13. Uh, there were those, who, this is Luke 13, 1 through 5. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans who blood, whose blood 
Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you all, all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you all likewise perish. They were asked the question, basically, Lord, if our world is ruled by a just and merciful God, then how can such evil happen to people? Were those people worse sinners than other sinners? That that what happened to them? Was, was God somehow weak in acting or didn't care? And then Jesus in his answer is making this point that they, were having, they had a wrong thinking, a wrong understanding of the Father. The question is not why did some die and others not die. The really question is why does anybody survive? So he is forbearance. There's a pause. And then he goes on. He's rich in his long suffering. Now, if you would, that's forbearance on steroids. That's just going the extra yard. It means that uh, he puts up with our sin for a long time. For a long time. And he's, he, he, he deals with it eventually, but he gives a long time for repentance. Look from the time of Adam and Eve to the flood, from Israel and bondage in Egypt to their being set free in their 40 years in the wilderness. We see it from the sins of Israel as a nation they committed in their history to the time finally when God sent them off into captivity. We see it even today as we live from the cross to right now in our present time. God is long-suffering. Our, our text speaks of this wonderful attribute of God. And he does it, and he acts this way, and he is this way to lead people to repentance. Verse 4, or do, you, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Now, make no mistake about it. When I sin, am I doing it, doing it in ignorance? No. And when you read about the people in chapter 1, they're not sinning in ignorance either because in chapter 1, he addresses that in 119 and 32. He says about those people, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Again, the, the J.B. Phillips translation of verse 132, or chapter 1, verse 32, he says, More than this, being well aware of God's pronouncement that all who do these things deserve to die, they not only continue to do their own practices, but do not hesitate to give their thorough approval to others who do the same. You see, those who sin, those who have a lifetime, a lifestyle in sin, they are presuming wrong about the goodness of God. They're thinking that because God has not acted, that somehow they have a divine okay from God, a divine approval of that lifestyle. But that's not so. In Hugh's commentary on this section of Scripture, he says, Sometimes God brings people to himself through difficulties, as they come to an end of themselves and cast their lives upon him. But 
He also draws people to repentance through kindness and tolerance and patience. No one should assume he is all right with God just because life is easy for him at any given time. God calls people through sunshine as well as through rain. Well, you know what repentance is, right? Repentance is not just a one-degree turn or a ten-degree turn. Repentance is a 180-degree, right? A total change of mind, a total change of direction. And God wants to bring us to that point, and he's long-suffering for that to be accomplished. He's not like me. Um, I'm so ready to write somebody off for a wrong done to me in a restaurant because I didn't get the service I should have gotten, and I'll never go back to that restaurant again. You see, in the economy of God, in his riches, the riches of his goodness and his forbearance and his patience, in God's economy, that's intended to bring the sinning person, change their heart. And God is not trying to let anybody get off the hook, but rather, as he waits, as he gives time, what he's doing is giving them an opportunity to change, to make that 180. I love, uh, again, 2 Corinthians 7.10. It says, For godly sorrow produces repentance and salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You see, this worldly sorrow is basically, uh, the best I can call it, is remorse. Remorse over being caught. Remorse not only being caught, but have now to suffer the consequences for being caught. But godly sorrow we, is that which is, we're not concerned with ourselves anymore. We're concerned for the ones that we have wronged, the ones that we have sinned against. We make no demands on, for ourselves anymore, and we, we, we would throw ourselves at the mercy of the one we have offended. In, in the uh, counseling I've done over the years, I, I truly can tell when a person is truly repentant because that repentant person makes no demands. Okay, I'm sorry for what I did, but uh, if I'm going to get back together with her, She's got to do this, this, and that. And I go, sir, you got to go back to the boo-boo room and <laughs> deal with yourself there. Here's the conclusion of the matter. We're going to come across people who don't know the Lord. As we come across them, they're going to be people that do violent, ungodly, and unrighteous things. And we want to make sure that they understand the goodness of God. We want to make sure that, you know, God is being kind towards them, being long-suffering towards them for a particular point, for a particular end, and for them not to take it lightly, for them not to think, think it no big deal. That would be a mistake because we read again in, in chapter uh, 2, if they continue on, they are storing up wrath for themselves. They're storing up the wrath of God on the day of judgment, and that would be a huge mistake. Now, to the religious hypocrite, uh, to the Christian who is involved personally in unrighteousness or ungodly practices for themselves, though not as obvious as what's stated in chapter 1, but still there, we must make sure, make sure that we don't presume upon our right standing with the Father through the Son that we can continue on because there's no partiality with God. And we know the Bible tells us that he loves us enough to deal with us, right? 
And I would rather be dealt with my father with a word, with a look even, than with an action. To the church, I just have this to say. Let us be the ones that exhibit his character appropriately to the people we encounter tomorrow, next week, six months from now. Because as they are, we were. And are we not thankful for the goodness and the patience and the long-suffering of God towards us? And we want to make sure that they receive that which we have received. And if we want to measure ourselves by anybody, as I said earlier, the one we stand next to to measure ourselves is Jesus Christ. And then clarity will happen. Now I want to close with a poem, and I kind of want to make this poem a a closing prayer. Uh, it's by a lady, Ruth Harms Kalkin, uh, and the poem goes like this. So if you'd like to just close your eyes, and she says, Oh God, you have driven me into a corner where I cannot escape. I come to you penitently, for today I have sinned grievously. I have betrayed my highest ideals. I have been false to my inner convictions. I know that I've broken your heart. Thank you for dealing with me in the privacy of your personal presence, for my sin has been against you alone. Cleanse me, O Lord. Change me. Sin so hideous, sin so outrageous. Renew me, God, until I'm spiritually contagious. So, Father, that's my desire for myself and I think for the church, that we would be spiritually contagious Contagious in the sense that they would hear your voice. They would feel your touch. They would, Lord, see your actions in and through our lives. And that, God, we would be your hands, your eyes, your voice. And we, when we look at the world that we live in, and it's so easy to be disgusted and to run, run, run away and isolate, but... You, you haven't called us for that. You called us to be on the front lines. Let us be rightly representing you to others as you have dealt with us individually and personally. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys. God bless you. And God keep you. And make his face shine upon you. Be gracious unto you. And stay warm and dry.